0: Hello and welcome to the rubber duck dev show. It is September 29th, 2021. It's almost time for Halloween. Getting close. Um, are you gonna wear a a, a costume on Halloween show? Had not thought about it. <laughs> Alright, chat. Should we? If we if we do, what should we be? Alright, let us know. Okay, so tonight I'll dress up like rubber ducks. <laughs> there you go. I mean, it would be appropriate, I suppose. Anyway, my name's Chris. <laughs> I'm Creston, And we are going to talk tonight about UUIDs. To UUID or not to UUID? That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the bits and... Oh, never mind. Um, and bites. So, <laughs> so uh, before we get into the UUID stuff, uh, what did you do this week?
1: So did a bunch of stuff, but first thing I wanted to mention, cause we ever, we always do these shows. And the last show was on background job processing. And I always remember stuff to mention after the show. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to mention, it was an interesting library for Ruby called sure. You can, or sure you can. I can't remember. Sure. You can. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and Apparently it comes from Street Fighter, I think, because that's what one of the moves says or something. But basically it's a library that does job processing, but it uses the Amazon's SQS service to do it. So it's basically, you get this library, you put it in your, you know, your Ruby app or Rails app, and you can use the Amazon SQS service as a queuing solution to process jobs. So that's just another option I wanted to mention. Queue. Cool. Uh, other stuff I worked on, uh, updated, talked about APIs that we did a couple of weeks ago. I did some updates to my Graph API for my app, adding some more um, queries for users to be able to grab different data that they're looking for. Uh, in terms of client work, continuing to work on some Rails upgrades, because like I said, whenever you're upgrading Rails, those, those gems can be a little bit of a nuisance. Uh, address some bug fixes for some clients at their request, Uh, Went talk through some AWS deployments, so assisting them moving their app into AWS and some best practices around that. And the last thing is uh, basically just doing some Postgres consulting, but some query optimization and maybe discussions around adjusting the schema to get the best performance for some of the apps that they're working on.
0: So what would you do? Um let's see. Stuff and things. <laughs> stuff and things and things and stuff. Now we 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 had some more conversation about um the question of the week last week at work. We're still kind of having that debate. I mean the the it's not a practical issue anymore because we've settled the the actual um programming change we were working on, but we're still kind of having the philosophical debate of should you um should background processes spawn other background processes or is that dangerous are there certain situations where it's okay is it never okay should that just not be allowed um so we're having a lot of discussion about that still um but at this point it's more of a philosophical musing um on downtime chats but
1: Now, what's wrong with just having, like, if this is going to spawn, a job's going to spawn multiple jobs, presumably there's additional work that needs to be done. Why not just make this like a long long running job that just addresses everything it needs to do?
0: Well, because of retries, um, if your job is doing things that, uh, if it's reading stuff out of the database and that stuff could have changed in between retries, Yeah. then it may not be a good thing to do. Because, like, let's say, for example, I want to send a receipt out, right? Well, if that order can change in between retries, I don't want... um. I, I want that receipt to go as it was the first time I sent it if it's doing retries, right? I don't want it to change in between. So in that case, what, what you would need to do is kind of have a job to gather the order and prepare the receipt and have that spawn a job that that just gets the receipt as a parameter and emails the receipt. And that job, that sub job is the thing that retries and retries and retries so that it doesn't change in the meantime so that's that's kind of a use case where sub jobs could be uh a thing that you'd want to do. The problem comes in when you have to try to troubleshoot and track those things down and you get and you end up with multiple layers of um, this job spawns this one that spawns these two others that each one of those spawns four jobs, and oh my God. Where did this one come from? You know, so it becomes a troubleshooting nightmare more than a mechanical nightmare. So there's still kind of, yeah, and, and,
1: and I suppose if you have a long running job that has particular work and you don't want to start over from square one, like if you're able to commit certain changes through the process, you don't want to have that all a part of one job and then something fails and then it retries the job. And it's like, no, 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 I was 75% done for example, you know.
0: Well, and that's that's the other part of the consideration is when you have thousands or tens of thousands of these jobs going, you want to have the repeatable jobs as small as they can possibly be. And you want the long running jobs to run as few times as is necessary. So because I don't want, you know, sending an email 10,000 times is a lot better than reading the database, creating an order, doing all the calculations and then sending the email 10,000 times. So, you know, there's a there's a queuing issue that goes on there too. You want to make sure those jobs can get disposed really quickly if you're you know, doing lots of transactional things. So, you know, there's use cases, but I think the real the real crux of the philosophical debate is is it is it maintainable, and is the troubleshooting a nightmare if you start chaining these things together?
1: Well, I would think a logical i mean if you have something that say creates an order, a job that creates an order and then a receipt needs to be sent, I wouldn't see any problem with spawning a new job that would just get put in the you know the top of the queue or bottom of the however you want to phrase it to send that email so it'll eventually get sent meanwhile you know you have your first job that creates the order i mean that instance of a job spawning a job makes perfect sense but then if you start going down the rabbit hole of more then
0: and that's and you know kind of the part of the discussion is okay at what point is it too much yeah yeah you know you know what's the protocol do i say hey you can have a job spawn one other job and that's it or can it spawn two levels or you know When do you cut it off and say, all right, no, that's and I think the conclusion that's that's kind of coming out is by default, don't spawn sub jobs. But if you have a use case where that's really the most appropriate thing to do. Let's take a look at it, you know, from a team perspective, get all the input and say, yeah, we think this is safe and yeah, this is not going too far. And really, that's—I mean—that's kind of the best way to approach a lot of protocols, I think. But um, you kind of have to be careful with that from a from a management perspective and from a creativity perspective, and all the things that go into
1: having everybody on the same page.
0: Yeah. So, um, but anyway, that's and then you know I've done all the programming and stuff, a lot of which I can't actually talk about. But that's you know yeah. It's um a lot of fixes for little things. It's it's been a lot of bug stomping this week, so you know just eight eight hundred little thousand tiny projects that have to be done. Um, this is just one of those (laughs) weeks, but all right. So on to UUIDs. Uh, first I want to pose the question of the week to the audience. If you are joining us live, feel free to pop something in the chat. If you're viewing this afterwards, feel free to put something in the comments. We will read them. Um, do you prefer to use UUIDs or integers for primary keys on your objects? That's the question of the week. So, I've I, i I've been doing this a long time. And I've been using... And by
1: this, you mean...
0: Programming. Development. Yep. Right. And my entire career, UUIDs and GUIDs have been around. I mean, they they've been around for a long time. But I never really stopped to think about what they actually are and what they actually mean. I mean, I knew when to use them. I knew what the concepts were. But when we were prepping for this show, one of the one of the things we were asking is, why? Why all the hyphen sprinkles? What's that all about? What's yeah. What does this mean? You know, yep. we've been seeing them for twenty years, but what are they? So
1: that's one reason I really don't like them because, like, so why do they have all these stupid hyphens? I don't know.
0: Anyway, yeah, because I can never just type one out and say, "Oh, I need this and this and this and this and this." There's a UUID. Yeah. No, it's okay. Let's get my language to generate me one, and I'll just copy it. Um. So let's start with just you know basic definitions. What is a UUID and what is a GUID? Um, so uh, the first thing is basically those are interchangeable in most development conversations. They're they're just used interchangeably. There are technically differences. GUID is the Microsoft implementation of UUID. Um, and there are some subtle differences, like, like GUIDs have to have uppercase letters when they're, because it's hexadecimal, so you have A through F. Those have to be uppercase in GUIDs. Microsoft tends, I mean, if you look into the registry on a Windows system, you see GUIDs all over the place. Microsoft uses them to identify their you know specific releases of their different products and all that kind of stuff and that's how MSI works and all that how reg- um, the registry registers programs and stuff like that so the registry's littered with oh god it's just like like 90% of registry entries are GUIDs. um but so it, in general those things are used interchangeably in development environments um in conversations. Um so what what actually are they then? Why the hyphen sprinkles? What's what's that all about? So basically they are hundred and twenty-eight bit uh hexadecimal identifiers and they're used to uniquely identify an object it's, in theory, universally, like this, this UUID will only ever belong to this thing, and this UUID will never be used by any other thing in the universe ever again. Now, we'll talk a little bit about the realities of that, but okay, so that's essentially what they are. Um, The sprinkles, the the hyphens are basically there to separate the fields of the bits that are making up the entire UID. So each field is basically an unsigned integer. And what you've got is a 32-bit block, a 16-bit block, a 16-bit block, 8-bit, 8-bit, and 48-bit. So if you look at it, it looks... Something like this. Now UUIDs are defined in RFC forty one twenty two. Are you able
1: to zoom that in a little bit, or
0: not really? Am I, am I able to? Of course, I'm able to. Yay. Yeah. Um. So you've got this first block, and then you've got these two blocks, and then these three blocks, and then a final block. Um. So that's kind of the layout of the pieces of a UUID. Um. And they're generally made from something like pieces of timestamps and MAC addresses and or um, uh, hardware IDs or random node IDs, depending on which version you're using, to to try to guarantee that it's always going to be unique. So there are actually five versions of UUID and along with some variants of some of the versions. um, Version one is what we use most today. um, And that can either be the last block is either a MAC address or a hash of a MAC address or it's just a random or pseudo random node ID.
1: Now, actually, I thought version four was the one that... Used most commonly today because it's pretty
0: random. Well, version four and not version one. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually not used as much. Although I think it should be because it just it doesn't use timestamps. It doesn't use. um, I mean, it's
1: more computationally intensive.
0: It is. And that's one of the reasons that it's not used as much in some circumstances is because it's all random or pseudo-random. And so they actually take a little longer to generate. And technically, there's more of a chance of collision with that than with the other ones. Though... More of
1: a chance of collision with version
0: 1. There's more of a chance of collision with version 4 than there is with version 1, actually. Now that those chances are so small as to be almost infinite, so it's not really a concern um but the big the big reason why version four and version four is used a lot, but version one especially in fast things, is implemented more because it's faster to generate.
1: Like, it looks like I was just doing some searching. It looks like Google. i sorry, what am I saying? Google it looks like Postgres, at least its function returns a version four.
0: Right. Well, so. and most UUID generators will implement most of the versions. They'll implement more than one version. Except for um, version two, because version two is... Defined as version one with DCE security, but that's never actually defined anywhere. So most UUIDs don't implement version two. But the long and short of it is version 4 is pretty much completely random, and so it's safe. And one of the reasons version 4 came about is because version 1 with the MAC address actually led to a pretty nasty virus that got released that used those MAC addresses to start identifying things. Um, so version 1 became a pretty significant security problem. One of the reasons they have a variant for version 1 is because they replaced the MAC address with a random node ID, so you still get the timestamp stuff blocks, uh, but the where the MAC address was at the end is a just a random number. Um, so to try to eliminate the security issue, um, so. And then there's 3 and 5 are name-based, and then they use MD, MD5 or SHA1 hashing algorithms to hash the namespaces that they're pulling from and stuff like that. Um, but they all have the same structure. So a UUID, just by looking at the UUID, you can't really tell what version it is often. Um, I mean, if you just look at the string... Because they all look pretty much the same. Um, Except I think version 4 is like a couple less bits. I think it's 124 bits instead of 128 or something like that.
1: I thought it was all 128.
0: Well, I thought so too, but when I was looking into it, I think they were saying version 4 is actually like 124 bits instead of 128. Read that somewhere. Um but anyway, there's so there's lots of versions, there's lots of ways that these things are generated, but in practice, each one that's generated is unique. Now there are if you were to do I think I think I was reading I can't remember if it's version one I was reading this for or version four but there's something like one in five quintillion times you may get a collision. So that's essentially never. Um, yeah. Um, and version one, can't be guaranteed to be unique because Mac addresses can't be guaranteed to be unique because they can actually be changed. So you could get collisions there potentially, but the, the chances of that are so small as to really be impossible, almost. Um, so it, it you don't generally need to worry about is this going to actually be unique across everywhere? Probably yes. Um, so one of the interesting things that I found this week as I was prepping for the show, is I started to look at where did UUIDs come from? What What's kind of the history of them? What are they there for? They haven't actually been around as long as I thought they were. Um, they were actually not really a thing until the 1980s with Apollo computers. Um, and the first thing they did was they implemented something called a UID, which was just a 64-bit Um, identifier, and it was only for internal identifications on their NCS, or network computing system, to ID entities internally. 64 bits was plenty for them. Um, But then they were trying to work with industry to standardize, and they wanted to get everybody to standardize around that uh, spec. And 64-bit wasn't enough, so they came up with the 128-bit UUID, um, which wasn't quite the RFC 4122 version 1 spec yet, but it was basically there. Um, so it really was the the UUIDs came out of an internal thing from Apollo Computers and then it was it was created to standardize uh the rest of the people in the industry around this so that they could interact better. And I just thought it was interesting that I assumed that something like a UUID, whether it was called that or not, had existed since the first computers. But it really hadn't until until we got to networking it seems that it wasn't really a necessity.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, <clears throat> I'm seeing something about UUIDs in version 4, and that 4, of the bits are used for the version number.
0: Okay. So. So, yeah, it's still 128 bits, but only 124 of them are used for the identification part. But anyway. It was, yeah. It's little weird things. And there are we, we do have some links. <laughs> when to... in doubt, use your programming languages Right <laughs> library. Yeah. You usually don't have to know this stuff. Yes. Like I said, I've gone 20 <laughs> years without knowing a lot of this stuff because it's just not necessary to program. You tell your programming language, hey, give me a UUID, and it does. You know,
1: yeah, like in Ruby, you just say something like you require secure random and then say, you know, right, dot uuid and it gives it to you,
0: or you say, hey, Postgres, I'm defining this as a uuid field, go and it
1: just, yeah, <laughs> and it or a function says, give me a uuid, it gives it to you,
0: right? So you generally don't even have to worry about what do the hashes mean, what, how is this built, is it really uni- universally unique. All that stuff. Um, The other interesting thing is, while it says universally unique identifier, which means I get this thing and nothing else will ever have it in the universe ever, that's not technically true. It's practically true, but technically it's not. It is possible to get duplicate UUIDs. Um, for a couple of reasons that we've gone over. MAC addresses aren't necessarily globally unique, and that in version one, in one of the variants of version one, MAC addresses were used. Um, The timestamps can actually be repeated, and since timestamp was a big part of the UID, um, you can get collisions because timestamps, because of clock drift and or random chance... Um, you can get duplications there and some versions of variants that are using RNGs or pseudo RNGs could get duplicates, especially if they're on different machines. Um, so all this stuff could happen. The simple fact of the matter is, in practical terms, you're talking about such a small likelihood of that occurrence that it's not something that I've had to worry about in 20 years of doing this. I've never run into it. I've never known anybody that's run into it. I've never even read about it happening. But statistically, mathematically, it can. Which, again, yes, that's interesting. But it's not really practically an issue. So, yay. Um, All right, so speaking of practical stuff, that's all the philosophical mumbo-jumbo history goo that I like. But let's talk about why would I actually use these. So, why would you actually use these? Besides Microsoft using them to identify their programs, where would a programmer use these?
1: Are you asking me?
0: Yeah. Your turn to talk. So,
1: so I mean, a lot of people like using them for their primary keys.
0: Whoa. And I'm sorry, go ahead. Why?
1: I don't know <laughs> cuz <'cause> I don't <laughs> And now where they shine, in my opinion, is if you have a distributed system and you're generating IDs from outside of, of, of the database. So if you are generating some sort of identifier on clients or heaven forbid you have a, uh, oh my gosh, I thought of the term, I was gonna say multi-tenant architecture, the um, microservices, that are all talking, have their own databases and you need right. some sort of unique identifier between them. Having a UUID could be an, a way to do that, to pass you know, this information across to each other right. uniquely. But that's the way I tend to use them. The only place I'm using them, for example, in my application is when I have someone new coming to the site, I generate a UUID for them or it, for a JavaScript client. I have the JavaScript client generate a UUID for it. Mm-hmm. So as opposed to something in the database. So that's something that you can just send off without having any back and forth communication. They can basically send it async to my database and it'll receive it and store it. And doesn't like need to send back, hey, here's what your unique identifier is. Mm-hmm. Because generally the JavaScript, you can do that and store it in a cookie. And then now that is that JavaScript's uh, applications identifier from then on. So it's basically a client-generated identifier.
0: Right. Now, why would you not want to use UUID as your primary key? So I think the
1: there's so, I mean, so I guess one big reason, I think there's multiple reasons. One big reason is that it can hurt performance um, in terms of uh, databases, because generally, generally you're going to have an index on this UUID to identify them. Now, the problem that happens is, is that when you have, imagine you have a sequence in an auto-incrementing integer, it can easily put that at the end of the index page, any new inserts. Whereas when you're talking to UUID, it's got to search and find the exact place to put it. It's, now you're having random IO across the index and you may have to do a page split because are, they are particularly large compared to an integer uh, mm-hmm. to be able to put in the right place. So you can actually get much more throughput on inserts when integers are your keys compared to UUIDs. And this also results in bloat, at least in Postgres, bloat, they bloat more and also impact your transactional performance. So much so that there have been suggestions from, you know, different, um, from different places that if you're going to use a UUID, you may want to consider using a pseudo random one. So basically it is like the first half of it is more ordered. And then the last half of it is random. And that enables at least to minimize some of these bloat issues and performance issues with doing inserts of these new UUIDs.
0: Right. But if you do that, then you have to be careful about assuming that's going to be universally unique. Um because you're actually taking control of part of the randomness of it. But
1: if you're doing that pseudo random, presumably it's being generated by the database and not some other. Yeah. place. Yes. Uh, anyway, but that's, that's, those are, that's a downside of them. Yeah. The other downside, you know, they are large and having to store more information, um, and I mean, I, frankly, I just find them harder to work with. Like when I'm working with a database that uses EU IDs, it's just this gosh, awful big thing there. It's like, oh my gosh. And like, imagine like in my app, working with my database, I say, okay, find me. I'm looking at some, oh, find me ID. And even if it's six digits, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, or whatever in the console to be able to find something. Now I got to... <laughs> Type this enormously long, well, I got to copy and paste it. And, you know, it's easy to find out, oh, wait, that ID is not this ID. So just working with it from a programmer's perspective, debugging something, they're a lot harder to work with just because they're,
0: you know. That's the biggest problem I always had with them was the troubleshooting angle. Yeah. You know, if somebody, if I say, if I have to say, hey, what's this ID? That's 32. Great. I can remember that. I can look it up in several logs and stuff and I can remember 32. Hey, what's this ID? for a 6f3-dc i stop <laughs> i'm done <laughs> paste and it the, in an email and send it to me
1: the and yeah and then the other issue is lack of easy ordering because so many times um some solutions to problems if you have a sequence and it's an id you know you have high confidence it's not going to be 100% of the time due to probably timing differences but if the integer one integer is larger than another it happened after it
0: right if i've got a so, million things in the database and i see id 2 i know that's an old record
1: right and it's easy to order by and get the first one or the last one or so it's just again makes it easier to work with
0: mm-hmm. now of course all of these things can be done with other things and like in in the rails world you always have well by default a created ad and an updated ad so you can order by that but again it's faster to order by integers integer indexing is i i think the fastest indexing well maybe I, yeah maybe would... booleans or bit Bit indexing, but well, but, but yeah, then. but
1: Booleans again, that's just true, false, and that's low cardinality. So, right. so if you're talking to B tree index, I would think it would be, you know, small, small integers. Right. But but and then but that means like now if your UUID is the primary key, okay. But I so you're talking about much much larger indexes. So now your primary key is much larger. And then if you need to do that ordering, like we were talking about, now you need to add an additional index onto your created at or your updated at, which you may not have to if you were using incremental IDs.
0: Right. now,
1: Incremental integers.
0: If your table might get up to a thousand records, these speed considerations are not really a consideration. Yeah. But if you're doing things where you've got a million records in a table, it's a big difference.
1: Yeah, and think billion, you know, because I've worked with clients that have multi-billion rows and, and tables, and there it really makes a
0: difference. Right. Of course, the other problem you have is with most integers, um, most primary key integers, you do have a limitation on how big a, an individual integer can be. So it will at some point flip over where you don't have that problem with UUIDs.
1: Yeah, and and that's important to you know call this a public service advisory or whatever, <laughs> but use big ints if you suspect your app is going to do anything or even just do it. Any- use big ends for your primary keys.
0: Yeah, because the, prob- the the space yeah. difference is negligible. And the, at this point, it's negligible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the days of COBOL, that was a big difference, <laughs> but today, just you just yeah, use a big int. <laughs> um yeah
1: and rails does that for example rails uh you know does that they didn't used to do that so that's well that that may have been like version four but in some version in the last i don't know how many handful of them they started uh using big ints for the primary
0: keys which only makes sense and i think i think big ints will go to what like 2.14 billion or something like that before it
1: No, no, that's an integer goes Oh, up that's to regular. 2 right? Yeah. So yeah. the big, so Ensel, big answer
0: Yeah, orders of magnitude higher than that. Yeah, yeah. So and if honestly I always thought look, if I get into a situation where I I create something and it has more than 2 billion records in a table, an individual table, I'm probably retired and not caring anymore at that point. So or, you, or you're or you the programmer that was hired
1: onto the team, <laughs> and now right. it's, it's hitting the limit. Now you got to deal with it.
0: Yeah, but at that point, it's time for me to retire. <laughs> I care about it anymore. I know, but I'm saying you're not the guy that created it. You're right. the programmer
1: that's been brought onto the job to fix it, because you weren't there at the start.
0: <laughs> I, uh, which, you know, happens in a gig economy, so...
1: Now the other thing to mention is that one advantage that people assign to EU IDs is that it helps with security although that I've heard it but it's a little bit no no I'm but I'm saying I'm dubious about it well cuz as well because I kind of think it it's like a security through obscurity because they don't want to publicly show what IDs Are like when you go to a particular web page and it says, hey, you're on account four or you're on order 2042.
0: But so what? My, My rebuttal to that would be, yeah, there was specifically a virus created that used UUIDs as the hole to get in. So security, I've never heard of that with an integer, you know?
1: Well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's security they, you know, through obscurity. So, but, and they they can learn. But if you're that worried about certain visibility into your app for it, you could always create one if you wanted for that use case. But yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to be your primary key.
0: <laughs> but honestly, I think I think if you're doing security through obscurity, you need to reevaluate your plan. For whatever you're programming because that's usually an indication that you've got bad security. That that's not a good security scheme. So if that's if that's your reason for using UUIDs, you might want to reevaluate your reasoning.
1: Yeah, I mean <laughs> I wouldn't think that would be a valid reason to do it.
0: No. Personally.
1: I mean, I would probably actually, if I wanted to do, and I wanted to put some obscurity and I probably wouldn't use a UID because it's just too bloody long. If I wanted some sort of identifier to hide what my integer primary key is, I'd probably come up with a six to eight character, 12 character, you know, something like that, and just have a unique index and have it along with the internal ID and have a unique index on it that it just It'll regenerate it or something if it, you know, happens to hit a duplicate.
0: Right, and and I have actually done that before. We had worked on a system where we had to um, give users like a nine-digit code that would be unique, so they never saw the I, the primary key ID. What they saw and what what it was looked up by was this nine-digit code. So and that you know generated and if it was replicated, but it didn't need to be universally unique. It only needed to be table unique. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's easier to control. So, uh, you know, there are use cases, valid, legitimate use cases for UUIDs. I, I don't think there are as many as a lot of people apply them to. I think they're applied a lot of times when they probably shouldn't be or there's no real reason to do it except that all the cool kids are doing it. So, you know, (laughs) that's.
1: Yeah. Oh, and there's one more thing uh, I forgot about, is that whatever you do, if you're going to use them, use the data type for your database to store them. Do not use text because otherwise it's going to be even larger.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God, no. <laughs>
1: That's So there should be, like Postgres has it, there should be a UUID data type in your database. If you're going to be storing them, use that. Don't just use a text field.
0: And if you need to use a UUID and your database doesn't have a UUID type, get a different database. Because <laughs> why? Why would it not? I mean, they haven't been around forever, but they've been around long enough. What, 40 years now? Plenty of time databases. Come on. I, I don't think I've ever run into a database that doesn't have a type for that. Not
1: Yeah, well, I mean, just make sure you're using them. Yeah. So, so it'll try to minimize somewhat some of the disadvantages we talked about.
0: All right. So any final thoughts on UUID or not to UUID? That was the question.
1: Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, for me, the reason to do it is if you need to generate an ID outside of your primary database, like your client generates it and you want the client to say, keep it in a cookie like a JavaScript app, or even a mobile app. If you want someone to sign up to a mobile app and you want, for whatever reason, the client to generate the unique identifier for that person and then send it to you that you store, then that makes sense to have, use UUIDs. Otherwise with the performance disadvantages that you can see, I wouldn't use them most of the time, but that's my opinion.
0: Right, And, and my thoughts are, don't always use UUIDs for primary keys. There are use cases where you should, but those in most cases should be the exception. Those should be tables that have a specific reason for having a UUID. Don't just do it because, hey, UUIDs. It's not better. It's better for certain use cases. So there are trade-offs. If you decide to do that, you're making some trade-offs. And you need to evaluate those to make sure that it's worth it. And in a lot of cases, it's not. So, all right, a little bit shorter episode, but that's all right. We crammed a lot of stuff in there. Um, Don't forget about the question of the day. Do you like using UUIDs or IDs, integer IDs for your tables? And whichever reason why, uh, let us know in the comments below. Please do, we will read them. Also join us every Wednesday night 8 p.m. Eastern time. We'll be just, you know, talking about random programming stuff. Uh, next week, should you comment your code? <laughs> Have some controversial stuff going on there. Um, Two weeks of controversial topics. <laughs> I know, right? UUIDs, and then should you comment your code? I we're just asking for a, for. A, Revolt. Revolt. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, hope you guys enjoyed this. Uh, don't forget to join us on rubberduckdevshow.com where you can listen to the podcast version. Also, you can get the podcast version on most of your podcast providers. Any word from Apple yet?
1: I submitted a support. Rec- oh, no. Yeah, no. I'm in the process.
0: Okay. We'll so, see iTunes should be coming soon, but the rest of them are covered, you know? So if you're, if you're an iTunes person, just go to rubberduckdevshow.com and you can listen to it there until we can get Apple to do whatever it is they got to do. Us. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, if you guys enjoyed that, please do mash that like button and throw some comments in there. So we know you're listening. Also, uh, what else? Oh yeah. Subscribe. That would be cool. Or follow if you're seeing us on Twitch. We do broadcast this and, simulcast on and Twitch. And you know, given in-
1: and then given how you know social media companies tend to unsubscribe people and hide things from you, if you want to make sure you always get our episodes, you can sign up for an email newsletter. We just basically send you an email to say, "Hey, here's uh, the link for this week's episode and what we're going to be talking about next week." So a very simple email. You can just do that at rubberduckdevshow.com.
0: And if you have friends that you think would be interested in this content and they don't know about it, please pass the word along. That would help us a whole, whole bunch. Uh, Share it on your social media and tell your friends. Uh, We assume you have some. I don't, but you probably do. Um, Anyway, we will see you guys next week. And until then, happy programming. Happy programming.